And to begin our journey for the book of Shemot, we are very excited to welcome today Professor Rachel Edelman, who is a member of the faculty at Hebrew College and provides a dynamic and open approach to text study. She's the author of a number of books and is also pursuing a rabbinic degree too through Hebrew College. And when not writing books, uh, papers or divrei Torah, she engages in poetry. So we look forward perhaps um, to some of that uh, or all of that um, today. A huge welcome to you, um, Professor Edelman, and we look forward to your journey with us of the um, opening of Shemot. Thank you so much, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Just a little corrective. I actually have been granted smicha, that is rabbinic ordination, from Hebrew College. So I'm now a rav. I call myself rav rather than rabba. And it's just a pleasure to be on this podcast. I've been following it on a weekly basis. And today I want to be speaking about the scene at the burning bush. And I want to ask a broad question and then a very specific question. The broad question is, what is the nature of sacred space and how is it determined? And what makes this sacred space that is the mountain of God unique? It's identified right at the outset of the scene as Har Ha'elohim that is the mountain of God. So what makes this mountain of God later identified as Sinai? What makes this place unique? And what makes the revelation at the burning bush a unique revelation? So that's what I want to talk about. I also want to talk about the strange request that God makes of Moses to unshoe himself. Unsheathe your sandal from off your foot, for this is holy ground. What is that about that ritual of taking off the sandal that actually marks this place as holy space? I want to begin looking at the opening few lines. And I'll read it in English and Hebrew. Now Moses, tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Chorev, which means dry, barren space. Chorev. This is the mountain of God. I'm going to continue in English. An angel of the Lord appeared to him. A malach Elohim appeared to him in a blazing fire out of the bush. And he gazed, and there was a bush all aflame. A boer ukal. Yet the bush was not consumed. And Moses turned aside, he says, I must turn aside and look at this marvelous sight. Why doesn't the bush burn up? And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God warns him and he says, Moshe, Moshe calls out twice, Moses, Moses. And Moses answered, Hineni, behold, here I am ready. And he said, do not come closer. 
אל תיקחב הלום, של נעליך מעל רגליך, כי המקום אשר אתה עומד עליו, אדמת קודש הוא. And he said, do not come closer, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. What do we make of this identification of the place as the mountain of God? What makes it the mountain of God? Now, the mountain of God comes up later as a place of identification in this scene, because God will tell in verse 12, God will tell Moses, when you have freed the people from Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So the reason why it's called Har Elohim, because it anticipates the revelation of Torah at this mountainside. Later, instead of Chorev, it's identified as Chorev here. Later, it will be called Sinai. And that's where the Israelites will receive the law. And the covenant with the people will be ratified. Sarah Yafet, a very important Professor Emerita of Bible from Hebrew University of Jerusalem says this, it is the revelation that makes the mountain sacred. It's not that it was predetermined and sacred, but rather it's the revelation that makes it sacred. Hence, it is an ad hoc, that is, it's retroactively granted sacred status rather than claiming permanent sanctity for itself. This is very different from the kind of sanctity that's granted to Har Moriah, Mount Moriah, for example, at the Akedah, which becomes the site of the Temple Mount, and Jacob's night vision of angels ascending and descending the ladder, which becomes Beit El-Manorah HaMakomazem, how awesome is this place, he declares when he wakes up, and that vision of angels ascending and descending becomes a sacred locus for the site of the temple in Jeroboam's establishment of a temple for the northern kingdom. So that's Beit El, Mount Moriah, very different experiences of holy space. This is temporary. This is ephemeral. And I would say that the ephemeral nature of this sacred space is bodied forth through the bush itself, which is called a sne. And sne, bush, in that term for bush is a near hapex legomenon, one of my favorite words in Latin. <laughs> it means a word that only appears once in the whole Bible. It's a near hapex legomenon. It does appear one other time, and that's in Moses' swan song in Deuteronomy chapter 33 where God is called Shochni Sne, the dweller in the bush. God is the dweller in the bush, and it really is referring back to this scene in Midian, in the desert, where there's a revelation of God in the burning bush. I want to turn now to the question of where is this place? Bible scholars disagree. Is it in the Sinai Peninsula where Jebel Musa is this very day. And there, there's a famous monastery. It's a Christian monastery that stands there today in Sinai Peninsula. Or is it possibly in what we would deem Midianite territory, 
the Gulf of Aqaba on the other side of the Red Sea, Jebel Alaus. There's controversy about where this is. And the reason why we can't identify the site of Sinai is precisely because we're not supposed to know where Sinai is. It's not supposed to become a site of pilgrimage. God warns Moses. Moses sort of cranes his neck, looks around. He's very intrigued by this vision of a burning bush that's burning and not being consumed. And he cranes his, he turns aside to look closer. Perhaps he deviates from his path. He's shepherding his flocks. He's very intrigued by this burning bush. After all, a bush itself is symbolic of something that will wither and die. And yet this bush doesn't burn. Unlike a stone monument that becomes a permanent marker of holy space, think about the stone that Jacob sets up back in the vision, his night vision, to mark that place. There's no permanent marker of this stone, of this site. He turns aside and God warns him and says, Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you stand is holy ground. The word Kodesh connotes that which is set apart. It's fraught with danger. It's highly charged and accessible. And God calls this Admat Kodesh, and it prefigures exactly the status that Sinai will have. Nobody is allowed to go up Mount Sinai at the site of Revelation. Rather, it's circumscribed, and people will have to stay outside those boundaries. Halfway up the mountain, the elders and Aaron and his sons and Moses will go to ratify the covenant. But otherwise, it's a place that only Moses himself will go into. I want to turn now to the idea of why strip off his sandals. There's a parallel passage in Joshua where Joshua is told, this is right at Jericho, before the proverbial falling of the walls of Jericho, the walls of Jericho came falling down. It's right before that. And we have an angel appearing to Joshua, and it's in the form of a man, and he stands before him, drawn sword in hand, and Joshua went up to him and asked him, friend or foe, basically. And the angel answered, I am captain of the Lord's host. I have come, and Joshua threw himself face down on the ground, prostrating himself and said, what should I do? What do you command me to do? And the captain of God's host, the Lord's host, answered Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So what's the purpose of this revelation? And why is he told to strip himself of his shoes. And I'd like to suggest, and I'm drawing from the Bible scholar, Christine Palmer, that it's a way of saying, you don't have any claim to this holy ground. What happens to Jericho 
in chapter 6, after its destruction, is that Joshua places a ban on Jericho and says, nobody can take booty from Jericho. It must be wholly dedicated, cherem, the word is cherem, wholly dedicated to God. Moses and Joshua are ordered to remove their sandals in the context of the exercise of a divine claim to this land, Admat Kodesh, holy ground. In so doing, they acknowledge both God's dominion and their role as his servants. Now, there are interesting parallels in the book of Ruth, for example. There's an enactment of a chalitza, which literally means the unbinding of the shoe. And there, Ploni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so, is told to unbind his shoe in order to dissociate himself with the role of the Redeemer, the Goel. And it's a drawing back on a ritual that's being described in Deuteronomy 25, where a brother is commanded to marry the widow of his deceased brother if the brother who has died has not raised seed. But if the brother refuses to marry the widow, he's told to unbind his sandal. And then the widow has to spit into the sandal and thereby the brother doesn't have to marry the widow. So similarly, Ploni Almoni in Ruth chapter four is told to unbind his sandal, right? To loosen his sandal. And he will not then be the redeemer of Ruth and raise seed in the memory of Machlon, Ruth's husband. The idea is really not having a claim on land. To say that this is uniquely God's land, not human land. It will not be claimed for human service. It will not be a site of pilgrimage ever after. What do we make of this? What do we make about this disclaiming of land, this disenfranchisement from a land, both with regard to Jericho, Sinai, and then with regard to the land of Machlon that Pliniamoni might have redeemed? I want to think about Har Elohim, the mountain of God. The mountain of God never becomes a pilgrimage or worship site. And the burning bush story is not an etiology. That is, it's not a just-so story about how this place becomes sacred. Rather, it's the first act in a drama that leads to unique and one-time event in Moshe's future and the author of this story's past. Sinai was never meant to be a permanent destination but a way station for people to encounter God's awesome presence as a lawgiver. It's not a permanent site. It's a temporary site of revelation. They lingered at Sinai. That is, the Israelites lingered at Sinai only long enough to build the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary, by which God would then appear And then they could take that commanding presence of God with them. That is, Sinai becomes portable 
through the Mishkan. And I think that's why the mountain of God is never permanently marked. That's why we have a burning bush. That's why Moses is commanded to unsandal his feet. Rav Edelman, thank you so much for guiding us through in such an innovative way. What kind of comes to mind for me in your exposition is that it is such a universal open space and yet the message coming through is so particular. Now, one might think that this is a spiritual experience of nature, but actually the message that then comes through, which I know didn't necessarily dwell on today, is so particular. And all the instances that you reference feels like there's a kind of push and pull between the universal and the particular. I wonder if you might comment on that. That's a really interesting question. Because they're in a hinterland, but no man's land. They're in the desert. It's not designated. And yet the message is really about the exodus from Egypt. And the purpose is to bring this collective people, the descendants of the patriarchs, into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And yet the revelation isn't in either place. So perhaps the reason why it's in no man's land is precisely because of the particularity of geography that is embedded in the message. That is, they're going to be, it has to be in transitional space, as you said, universal or indeterminate space, paradoxically, in order to say they're going to bring them out of the particular place called Egypt, Goshen, and bring them into the particular place, the land of Canaan. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Thank you for that question. Thank you. The other thing that I wondered if you might comment on was really the importance of this episode within the Exodus narrative. It feels like, again, in order for Moses to encounter his mission, he has to go out and out again into this indeterminate space, as you say. And then there are a number of other instances throughout the book of Shemot where there are maybe similar goings out. And I wonder if you might comment on that. Yeah, similar goings out. What are you thinking about specifically? Um, Now, brainstorming aloud, but Moses, it feels like, almost is the forerunner of the people's experience with revelation and revelation for the entire people that we see. But Moses has to go through this first and the way in which God interacts in the story in a number of places, maybe not quite similar to the burning bush, which is unique. And yet perhaps there are echoes like elsewhere of other instances. I think one can read this particular revelation to Moses as prescient for the revelation that will happen to the people. That's one way of reading it. Or one could read it as a trial of Moses to see whether indeed he's worthy of becoming the leaders of the people. That is, how is he responding to the revelation? Is it with due circumspection? Is he cautious? Is he obsequious? Is he disclaiming his right to become the leader? There's a lot of sense in which this is a trial. The first gesture of that trial is the unsheathing of his shoes, the taking off of his shoes. 
There's the hiding of his face. Moses, in response to God's revelation, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And then Moses hides his face. And that perhaps later anticipates God hiding God's face. You could read it as a kind of a buildings Roman. There's several scenes where God requisitions his prophet. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel all have these revelations where the prophet always says, oh, no, no, don't choose me. (laughs) I'm too young or I'm, I'm not a speaker. I can't speak. And Moses says, I can't speak. This could be that. And it's a going out in your terms. It's a moving out of his comfort zone into a role which God really foists upon him unwillingly. He's very resistant to this role. And then finally, he keeps saying, Lo I'm not a man of speech. And then finally, God says, okay, shlach yad biyad. Moses says, send the one who you're used to sending. Shlach shlach. And God says, okay, I'll give you Aaron your brother, as your spokesman. So they become a team. They become a dyad. And they will be the ones that lead the people out of Egypt together. Thank you. Again, that was truly wonderful. I think that you're bringing, obviously, your poetic sense to your exploration was moving and profound in in truly one of the most profound encounters that we read in the whole of the Torah. Thank you for sharing with us and guiding us on the beginning of our journey through Shemot. And we look forward to welcoming you back again. Okay. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been wonderful to be on the show, and I look forward to listening to future episodes. It's been a great journey. Fantastic. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about the exciting content that we have for you at our mothership at jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.